is eating alligator meat and it makes me laugh <laughs> just to see this little kind of kitten kind of walking around and I'm like she's gator <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics and neglected issues in bioethics, healthcare, medicine, and society. Basically anything that we, your hosts, find interesting. I'm Tyler Gibb in beautiful Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm Devin Stahl in the slightly less beautiful Waco, Texas. Hey, wait a minute, Tyler. Did you mess with my script? With us today is Enza Rocco. She is the assistant director of the master's program in urban bioethics in the Center for Urban Bioethics at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University, where she also serves as an assistant professor. With her, Professor Amy Lewis. She's the associate chair of the English department at the Community College of Philadelphia. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Excited to be here. Why did you guys agree to come on to a podcast called Bioethics for the People? Well, I absolutely love that that idea, your, your name itself, bioethics for the people, because I think often bioethics is removed in these sort of academic spheres or settings where we don't always talk to community members about issues that really matter. And I was talking to one of my students the other day about, you know, how to make an ethics consult. And I said to her, you know, how many patients and families do you think know how to make an ethics consult or even know what an ethics consult is? And, and I don't know, um, but I would venture to think, at least among my family members, not that many. So it's really important for us as bioethicists to talk to community members about issues that we care about and that the community cares about. So one of those issues for me is food justice. And another one that we're going to talk about today that's very closely related is animal ethics. And do it in a way that isn't just super academic. Those theories certainly matter and they undergird the reasons why we believe certain things, but um, in ways that we know how to take action and in ways that are relatable and that we can talk about. So the whole theme of your podcast, I think is just awesome. That's what we like to hear. Yes. Your pay, your, your check is in the mail for that. <laughs> All right. And Amy, an English professor, what are you doing here? Well, see, it's great because Enza just set me up so perfectly because uh, I, I felt a bit like, you know, a fish out of water as somebody who has no sort of scientific connection to um, bioethics or anything like that. I am kind of your lay person who is not even was not even necessarily, I guess, consciously involved in bioethics, but does deeply care about um, the ethics of, you know, as Enza mentioned, people having access to nutritious food. Um, I care about animal rights. And I think it's very easy for people to hear bioethics and think, oh, that's a sciencey academic thing. That's that's not for folk like me. But, you know, all of us really have a responsibility to bioethics. And I think it's important for all of us to really think about our attitudes toward animals and toward uh, other communities that are not like us. And um, to not just sort of throw your hands up and say, oh, that's for bigger people than me to figure out, uh, but to say, what what role can I take? What small steps can I do that are very possible within my uh, realm of power to make things better for others? It's especially relevant now in this pandemic that we're seeing uh, just how ethical issues impact our daily lives. And, and they always have, you know, but I think people tend to think in terms of really big issues like abor abortion, physician aid in dying, and we 
we forget about all those other little issues that impact us day to day. And I think certainly the pandemic has highlighted the importance of having an ethical framework because it touches all of us and it's going to continue to touch all of us. So even more relevant today. Thanks, Amy and Enzo. So I'm thinking, gosh, when I teach bioethics and when I think most people think about bioethics, if they've heard of it, they're kind of thinking about clinical ethics or medical ethics. And they don't always think about things like animal ethics or ethics of the environment. This is something I have to prod my students to think about because, I mean, bioethics, bios includes all of life. Surely we are not the only alive things in the world. But what do you think animal ethics has to do with bioethics more generally? I think eating is an ethical act. So what we choose to eat um, has ethical implications. Also, how we get our food, how we treat animals. I don't think any, any person who considers these kinds of issues could defend um, how we treat our animals in, in factory farming. Um, and Martha Nussbaum actually just said that in an inter interview. And I was like, I think that's very true. I don't think anybody can really come up and defend that. But we often don't talk about it or think about it because it's really hard. And it's really hard to think about how to fix that. Um, but, but what we consume, food or other things, all have ethical implications. And, you know, I'd like to add to that, that I think this year in particular, or these, it's, a, it's been a, such a long year, it's actually been two years, um, but it's, it really has highlighted to us sometimes these things that, you know, I, um, I'm a vegan, uh, you know, but I don't do CrossFit. And uh, I think... <laughs> you know you hear people say that and people roll their eyes uh and you know oh you're just worried about the little bunnies and the the little chickies and everything and, and yes thank you very much i am um but i think there's this idea sometimes you know and people would roll their eyes at the idea of the word speciesism you know where we kind of think that other species don't matter because we are at the top of the food chain and i guess arguably we kind of put ourselves uh at the top of that food chain but I think, you know, vegan or not, we have in our neglect of animal rights and the treatment of animals in the way that we get our food has implications not only on those animals, but it does for humans too. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, the fact that many of the pandemics we are looking at are, have been caused by the inhumane mishandling of animals. Um, that have had now, as we've seen, serious repercussions on human beings. So even if you don't care about the little rabbits and the little bunnies and the duckies, um, you know, care about the fact that we have how many million people who have died now from COVID and people who are, you know, disabled permanently or at least long term, uh, people who have lost their, their well, their livelihood, uh, you know, all from really the mistreatment of animals was the beginning of it. If you look at the, um, you know, the conditions of the factory workers who are working in these kind of meatpacking industries or these meatpacking corporations, I mean, they are treated horribly as well. They were some of the ones who got hit the hardest by COVID and even COVID withstanding. I mean, the, the conditions under which they work are themselves inhumane. So I think our attitude toward food where animals are expendable things and who cares about them and it's just important that we get as much food as we can as cheaply as possible and who cares how we get it 
you know, environment be damned, it does still eventually come back on us. So it's coming back on us, you know, you know, through the pandemics and through the treatment of the workers and, you know, the impacts on the environment, which eventually come back at us. We're seeing, you know, with climate change, you, you can't kind of say bioethics is not something that impacts me. Eventually it does. Totally agree. It's interesting the way that you guys are framing this as, as touching on so many different parts of our lives. So I work at a medical school. I, I do clinical ethics. I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about healthcare and how to teach our medical students and residents. And for me, it's easy to forget that healthcare isn't the only bioethical related issue. You guys have brought up food insecurity and the food supply system and ecology and the environment, climate change, and all these things. Through my lens, I see how they're intimately connected to the health and the status, the health quality and the health disparities that the individual patients have. It really is kind of coming coming into focus for me, at least. Yeah, I think um, that this is the only way I can think about it because I don't have that scientifically inclined brain to, uh, to kind of grasp medical part of it. I, I have a deep respect and appreciation for that, but, but no aptitude for it. But I, I think, you know, obviously it's uh, the medical realm is, is hugely important for those of us who, who are not in that field. It's important to realize that we have a role, we have responsibility as well. Let's try to tackle these topics maybe one at a time, or I don't think that we're going to get to all of them because you guys raised a lot of really good, really complicated <laughs> issues. Um, so let, let's look at food insecurity right now, because I know that both of you are involved in uh, community-based efforts or organizations or stuff there in the Philadelphia area about food insecurity specifically. And so can you just share with us a little bit what your work is or what your, your experience in that area has been? So I work on a program called Farm to Families, and it's a partnership between the St. Christopher uh, Foundation for Children and the Center for Urban Bioethics. And we started in 2016. What we believe is that food is medicine. And in North Philadelphia, we have about a 30% food insecurity rate as pre-COVID. So my guess is that it's it's going to, as the research comes out, be, be much, much higher. You know, but we believe that people want to be healthy and they want to make healthy choices, but there are barriers to that, namely being cost and access to healthy fruits and vegetables. And so what Farm to Families does is it allows our healthcare practitioners to write scripts to their patients to get access to low cost or no cost fruits and vegetables. And it also allows people to buy at very low cost uh, healthy fruits and vegetables from organic farms and family farms in Lancaster. And so we really try to just embolden individual choice to remo remove these barriers of cost and access so that individuals can get uh, you know, healthy fruits and vegetables and not travel you know, 45 minutes or more to access them. North Philadelphia uh, around Temple Med does not have any grocery stores within walking distance, none. We're overrun by corner stores, but that doesn't mean that people are using corner stores to eat. It means that they just have to go farther and they have to spend more money to get fruits and vegetables. So Farm to Families has operated all through the pandemic and we actually switched to a delivery method to bring fruits and vegetables to all of our clients, you know, right to their doorstep. And, you know, there's this article in, in Politico yesterday talking about how great would it be for healthcare systems and academic healthcare systems to start to think about food as medicine and to have uh, healthcare providers be able to prescribe fruits and vegetables as medicine. And I'm like, we've been doing this. Here we are. We've been doing this since 2016. 
Um, and I would love to see that model replicated because I think it's very important all the things that we mentioned for everybody to sort of start acknowledging that food is medicine um, and to start breaking down those barriers for folks to, ha to have access to it. Food was the first medicine, right? Absolutely. And unfortunately, eating healthy continues to be a privilege in the United States. Not everybody has the ability to eat healthy and eating healthy should not should not be a privilege and should not be limited to only some people. Yeah, I mean, I always use the example. You can uh, you can buy an entire kind of, you know, bucket of fried chicken and mashed potatoes and all the fixings and everything from Kentucky Fried Chicken for about the same or less than you can buy a bag of grapes. And so it, it's, it is, you know, getting your, your daily serving of, of fruit and vegetables is, is not as easy as it sounds. And I think it can be very easy for those of us who live in um, wealthier or even kind of just middle-class areas to forget how difficult it is for a lot of people to get access to healthy food. Because, it, you know, for me, I can drive to Giant, it's five minutes away. Actually, I can drive to four or five grocery stores within 10 minutes. And, you know, I can price compare and, and do all of that and, and leave with a, a bag of groceries that's going to be, uh, you know, nutritious. But for a lot of people, that's that's not an option at all. And so they have to get whatever is nearby them. And oftentimes that is convenience food, which is oftentimes not the, the healthiest. And for me, my the connection as well, you know, a personal connection. My mom grew up very, very poor on food stamps. And she, when you have been through that, it stays with you for life. Uh, so even though my mom eventually made her way into the middle class and and to my knowledge at least growing up we didn't have to worry about there not being food if we did then my parents did a very good job about hiding that from us but you know we would go out to eat and i would say oh you know i'm full and my mom's response was always eat now because you don't know when we're going to eat again uh and it's something that stays with her now she's 75 years old you know her poor days are well past her but she still uh, getting her to throw away food, even when it's spoiled, is very hard uh, because I can see in her eyes that she does not trust that more food will come. So it is a trauma that that stays with people. And then as an educator, you know, I've seen, I've taught children and now I teach college students and I see people who are food insecure all the time. And I see the ramifications that has you know, even on their ability to learn, how, how can you learn, you know, math and English and science if you're hungry uh, or if you're worried about where your next meal is coming from? So, um, you know, my college has a food pantry and I think it's, it's a great thing. Students can come get heat and eat meals. They can get a, a bag of groceries to take home with them. Again, it's not always the most nutritious food that we can offer them because we have to think about the longevity of the food and, and what conditions they might be going home to, whether they have the ability to refrigerate. We don't have the ability to refrigerate. I mean, this is a, a uh, kind of faculty and staff run food pantry. So we're working with what we can and we don't have the ability to refrigerate things. So a lot of the stuff does have to be kind of, have, have a long shelf life and uh, non-spoilable, uh, is that a word? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Non-perishable. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, but, you know, we, we, we do what we can so that at least they can get food in their bellies. The pantry model is a difficult one. And, and, and it's great that you guys have that at your school. We also have, you know, one at, at Temple as well. And we're acknowledging that food insecurity is touching everybody, especially during the pandemic. And students are certainly not immune from that. Um, but the pantry model itself is sort of flawed 
uh, because you know they measure success in the the bulk given out um, and not necessarily in the in the nutritional value. So finding healthy fruits and vegetables, finding fresh produce is difficult at pantries. It was especially difficult during COVID, and so rethinking you know why we have pantries they they operate sort of on this emergency basis trying to get away from that in into programs that help people to regularly have food instead of having to come on these emergency bases and also sort of acknowledging that pantries often give out things like canned goods and not everybody has a, a fully working kitchen not everybody's able to go home and prepare meals or cook meals or, or have utensils or refrigerators there too is important to acknowledge as well yeah, and this leads us right into the, the the other topic that you brought up earlier is it's not just how we feed ourselves. Well, it, it's not just that we feed ourselves and that we feed ourselves and each other in a in a healthful way, but the supply chain and how we mass manufacture the the food also have really important ethical ramifications as well. Right. So if if both of you were to think about what systems in our country need to change so that food can be produced and distributed in an ethical way, what do you think are some of the ways we might reconsider how we do food in this country? If we wanted to solve food insecurity today, we absolutely could. If we wanted to solve it 20 years ago, we absolutely could. We continue not to for, I don't know what reason, I ask my students this all the time. You know, we have massive food waste in this country. You know, more than 40% of our food supply just goes into waste. So rethinking that waste I think is our first big step and rethinking the amount of food that we, that we waste, I think is a really, really important step. I think our, our farming system and our supermarket system as well, uh, our, our culprits. And I don't mean this because I actually, it's the farmers are some of the people who get screwed the most, um, because their farms essentially get taken away from them by these kind of big food giants. And so you know, the farmers are they almost become sort of indentured servants to, you know, your Tysons and, and corporations like that. Um, and so factory farming becomes one of the only ways they can sort of keep their head above water. And, you know, that has implications on the farmers. It has implications on the way food then becomes distributed with like the meat industry, for example. Uh, and those workers, also the, the, the supermarket system is incredibly wasteful. I know there are some chains that are trying to improve upon that, but you know, there's the the company called Imperfect Produce and their whole model is that they sell the produce that supermarkets wouldn't and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just your apples a little kind of lopsided. Um, but the supermarket is all about kind of presenting this glossy version of your food. And so tons of perfectly good produce gets neglected or thrown away food gets thrown out rather than sort of donated a lot of the time. Um, and so these are, you know, two systems I think we really need to examine if we want to look at ways to, you know, sort of address wastage and also uh, exploitation. I think we should also abolish the income requirements for SNAP, uh, for food stamps, because it shouldn't matter why people you know, our food insecure, you can be making over $100,000 and still, especially, you know, during times of COVID, you can see why you still might need help with food. So if somebody's asking for help with food, let them have access to food. And so there's a really big difference between, you know, like this Amar Sen sort of idea, are you able to be nourished? And are you actually nourished? So there's food everywhere, you are able to be nourished, but are you actually nourished? 
is the question that we need to be asking. I appreciate a lot of what these sort of suggestions are systems questions. I worry sometimes when we talk about these issues that it all comes down to sort of consumer choice and my own personal waste. And maybe I'm just trying to shirk off my own responsibility here. But I think <laughs> a lot of times when I, I talk to folks, it's like, well, what are you doing personally? How much are you throwing out? And I think those things are important. And I want to ask you in a minute about, you know, what we can do personally. But I, I think that some of those questions obscure the sort of giant corporations that are making these things really impossible for us to eat healthy and to care for the environment in ways that are appropriate. I think it's true. It's a combination. If we really ask ourselves how much food we've thrown away in the last 24 hours, and I have three little kids. I'm lucky if we get through dinner and half the food isn't on the dog, the cat, and on the floor. And so really examining how, as I've gotten into this food justice work, you know, how much I'm actually taking out and preparing, I, I've really tried to be more conscious about it. I come from a big Italian family, so portions, you know, you just make a lot. So now I've really tried to rethink that because it was going to waste. The kids are just not eating it. So what can I do personally to reduce that waste each day is, is something I've really tried to be much more cognizant of. And I think for those of us who have access to food, it's so abundant. You know, you go to the supermarket and the food has become so cheaply produced now that I think we don't feel as guilty about tossing it out if we don't get through it. Cause you're like, oh, whatever. You know, you can buy this many steaks now for $5 at, at Walmart. So it's not a big deal. I'll just throw this away. Um, so I think part of that is, you know, making food so kind of cheap has maybe cheapened the way we look at it. You know, I think just a, a part of it, feeding into what, what Enza was saying, it's not that I was ever purposefully wasteful of food, but I think COVID and you know, an image that I think is going to haunt me for the rest of my life was just days after March 13th. I think March 13th is where we all kind of mark COVID as being like for real for us, because that's when the, the lockdown happened and, and everything. But, um, you know, within days of that, seeing footage of these lines for food that stretched as far as the eye could see people in their cars, they're very nice cars in many cases, because just days ago, these people were making very good money and had no reason to worry about their future. But suddenly, they are now food insecure. And seeing the, that image um, really stuck with me. And it kind of made me look at how I was consuming food and how I was um, really kind of making the most of it. And I, I really made a conscious effort during that knowing how many people were worried about their next meal to try to be more conscientious about the way I purchase and make food. I hope my husband listens to this because bananas is a huge like dispute in our house. I don't really like bananas. He always insists on bananas and I'm always throwing away the bananas and in part because they're so cheap, right? You can get like 10 bananas for a dollar but then I always feel so bad about throwing them out. And then we keep them because we're going to make banana bread, which we never make banana bread. So then I just have rotting bananas sitting around all the time. But I hope he listens to this so we can uh, get him off the <laughs> banana kick. Well, let's be fair. Bananas are fickle mistresses. And they go, they start to spot. I'm one of those people that uh, if as soon as I see the first brown spot, I'm like... You know, I, I like my bananas almost a little bit green, uh, which I know is not the way you're supposed to eat them, but I, I am like yeah. that. 
But you know, something I will do with the brown bananas is I'll freeze them, uh, break them up, freeze them, and then I use them in, to thicken a smoothie. Uh, yeah. So that it, it's actually more like a milkshake. It's quite nice. Yeah. The, I think the biggest food waste in my house is my kids. Oh, because yeah. they will, so we'll bring home like, you know, a pound of blueberries, right? And they will sit down and they will pound through a pound of blueberries <laughs> in like 15 minutes. Then the next time at their store, we're like, they liked one pound of blueberries. Let's get four pounds of blueberries. So it lasts more than 15 minutes and then bring it home. And they're like, I don't like blueberries. I never liked blueberries. And they, they're just liars. So what are some things that you guys are doing in your lives? We talked about this a little bit, but what are some other things that we can do that will help not just, uh, you know, food insecurity, food justice issues, but also animal rights and, and the way that we in, interact with non-human members of our ecosystem? Well, I think, I mean, it, some of these things are not going to be possible for everybody, but I think cooking, you know, if you're able to cook food uh, from, you know, from scratch, which sounds really intimidating, but there are a lot of recipe websites out there that can really streamline the process for you. So, I mean, the stuff that I make is really basic. I am not an amazing cook by any means, but you know, I make things that are really simple that use limited number of ingredients. You don't have to have a lot of skill or time, but even so that's not necessarily possible for everyone. But if you have the ability to do so, cooking is a great way to cut down on waste and also to eat more nutritiously and to eat more cheaply. Trying to get away from sort of single serving, single portion kind of products. And, you know, for example, my, my husband said it really hit him how many, how much waste he was creating. He likes to eat a little bit of um, Icelandic yogurt every day with his lunch. He's not a vegan. And he said, you know, he, he was at work and he looked and they hadn't taken out the recycling for a while. And there were just a ton of little yogurt cups in there. So we'll go and we'll buy like the big kind of pot of it. And then I'll like individually scoop some into a reusable Tupperware container. So I think that's another way you can sort of be more environmentally friendly uh, and less wasteful. So, you know, we, we hear a lot about, you know, this beyond meat. Uh, stuff that's out there, you know, the Beyond Meat Whopper. Uh, we have a lot of options um, that have come out in the last few years for lab-grown meat, um, plant-based burgers. And so as you sort of crunch into your veggie burger and you think, so cool to be eating this veggie burger, remember why you are eating it. You know, not just because it's available. Maybe you like it, you it tastes good, that you're obligation is not just to kind of choose foods that reduce animal suffering, but remember there's still a ton of animal suffering. So I think you should make better food choices, but also work actively to rethink our factory farming system, rethink how obtuse our laws are, you know, protecting our, our pets on the one hand that, that have a lot of protections or, or, you know, our home dogs and cats, our homeless cats are a different discussion but our cows our pigs have very little protections mm -hmm. so they have a lot of suffering and so as you purchase these you know veggie burgers or whatever don't forget that there's other action to be to be taken to reduce animal suffering not just kind of buying a veggie burger and i think too 
you know, something I think that intimidates a lot of people from doing a lot of things is like all or nothing thinking. So I know right now, you know, Enza and I are talking and people are like, well, I don't want to become a vegan. You know, that's, that's too much. That's, that's a lot of, you know, and it's not even that you have to become fully vegan, uh, you know, but think of maybe ways you can reduce your meat consumption or reduce your dairy consumption. And, you know, even if that is, it starts at, you know, one meal a week or one day a week, even that makes an impact. If enough people do that, that does make an impact. So if, if the whole idea of, you know, going vegan or being, you know, super environmentally friendly, um, you know, if all of it seems overwhelming, you know, do, do small steps and do what you can because even those small steps really do have an impact and they really do add up so you know don't let the the enormity of the the problem intimidate you from taking any action i think that's great advice that was such a uplifting note for all of us so thank you both enzo and amy for being here with us yeah thank you for having us For more information about today's episode, show notes, and links to articles and topics discussed, please head over to bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstall for all the podcast-related artwork, and Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here. I mean, that brings me to like a really important ethics question, which is if you could lab grow meat of the celebrity you hate the most so that you could f- consume them, and maybe, you know, maybe you hate them or maybe you just really want to consume them. Maybe it's a, the opposite of hate. Who would that celebrity be? Ooh, so we're into cannibalistic territory now. Yeah. Cannibalistic <laughs> hatred. But it's, you know, it's the lab grown, so it's a little uh, softer. <laughs> It's a step removed. It's cannibalism light. <laughs> do I get do I do I get to receive any of their characteristics or skills or is, is that how you think eating by... meat works? Yeah. I feel like I <laughs> more more bovine this when I have a burger. <laughs> Don't you? Would you guys have been worried if I had, had like a really quick and ready answer? If I was like Yes, that that would be Shakira, like right away. <laughs> oh no. Not Shakira. <laughs> I love oh. Shakira. I love Shakira. Shakira is my favorite. Come on. So, oh no! I say, well, I want those hips that don't lie. You know, even yeah. A moment on the lips, a lifetime on my hips that don't lie. <laughs> <laughs>